Range athwart ships abaft the windlass. Lay to for a starboard tack. <laughs> Mason, what the hell are you doing? You know, Jeff, I used to be a sailor on a sailing ship, and that was some sailor lingo. Oh, okay. Well, none of that made any sense. Well, it did to me, so I'm special. <laughs> no, you're being a tool. So uh, belay the lingo, or I'll send you to Davy Jones' locker. <laughs> you know, you're right. Lingo isn't fun if you don't know it. Photography lingo is just as bad as sailor lingo. I'd say it's downright discombobulated. Let's uh, come about and photocombobulate this. <laughs> what have I done? Photography can be confusing. Especially all the lingo that gets tossed about. So we're here to translate that lingo so anyone can understand it. We're here to photocombobulate. I'm Mason Marsh. And I'm Jeff Carlson. So here's the thing. People use lingo to signal knowledge, right? But that can be kind of, I hate to use the word, it can be kind of dickish. It can be off-putting. Uh, and especially with photography, there's so much lingo. And if you've been doing it for a long time, a lot of it you just pick up. I mean, you can't help it. Uh, but for somebody who isn't into photography or maybe they don't know a particular portion of the photography – uh, it's it, it's baffling and it feels kind of exclusionary. Like, oh, well, you didn't know what, uh, you know, aperture meant. There are a whole bunch of different terms that can be baffling, especially when you're, when you're starting out. And honestly, I mean, th there are some things that you know, still trip me up and I've been doing this for quite a while. So I think what we wanted to do with this episode is kind of lay down a foundation of photography lingo. And part of this is our attempt to rant a little bit about how lingo gets used against people, but also just as something that, that people can refer back to and say, oh, right. Somebody asked me the other day what the difference was between a, a mirrorless camera and a DSLR. And I have a good sense of what that means, but how does a mirror fit in? And so we're going to we're going to photocombobulate this. We're going to decombobulate. <laughs> see, see, I'm already I'm already <laughs> tripped up on the lingo. See, you're all twisted up. Yeah, I mean it's a real alphabet soup, right? We have all these acronyms. We have these special words. Some of these terms have been around for decades, and they're outdated. Yeah. Some of the terms are brand new, uh, brand new technology. We're always talking about emerging technologies and, mm -hmm. and the evolution mm -hmm. of this, you know, photographic process in involves a lot of new stuff. And so, yeah, I think this episode is really going to be a primer for people to, you know, use as a way to get to know some of this lingo. But we definitely want people to understand that behind lingo is understanding, and it should be behind lingo's understanding. And that lingo should not be uh, an obstacle. 
And right. so I, I'm actually really, uh, I'm holding up a book here for those not, <laughs> not viewing this, but listening, holding a book, a book called The Thing Explainer, uh, Complicated Stuff in Simple Words. And this is by uh, an author that I just adore. His name is Randall Monroe. The whole book is him explaining mostly scientific things, but really complicated things in normal language. And so, for instance, he calls the space shuttle a space truck. <laughs> you know, just simple things that everybody can understand. And that's mm-hmm. at the core of this podcast. One of our kind of fundamental beliefs is that we should make photography accessible for everyone Yeah, and make things understandable for everyone. And so I love that we're going to pick apart some of this lingo and photocombobulate it. So let's talk a little bit about history. One of the things that's frustrating about photography is that a lot of the lingo is brought over from the film days. And when digital came about, basically all the camera manufacturers, they needed to convince photographers to switch to digital cameras. And that was not an easy sell because, of course, you had people who had been shooting film, shooting with their cameras uh, for so long. Like, that's what they did. They knew how to do it. And here comes digital and some things work a little bit differently. And so a lot of the terminology carried over because that made the market, the the customers, the photographers able to easily understand how things worked. And so one of the things that gets me all the time is when somebody talks about a 35 millimeter equivalent, Yeah. right? So the 35 millimeter refers to the size of the film. Well, early digital cameras could not make sensors that were that large. You had to do some math. You'd be like, well, okay, you have like a smaller sensor. And if you put this lens on it, it would be this field of view if you had a similar lens on a film camera, right? Right. right. See, already I'm, I'm getting tripped up because it, it frustrates it's, me so much. It's super confusing. <clears throat> and it doesn't help that we refer to 35 millimeter equivalent in regards to the film, when we're talking about lenses, which are also measured in millimeters. Right. The focal right, exactly. lenses. So, <laughs> exactly. you know, a 35 millimeter lens is not what we're talking about. We're talking about 35 millimeter film and it just gets all crossed up and it's, yeah. it, it could have been changed at that point, right? We could have yeah. just said, um, this is a such and such size sensor. Some of the camera companies, we'll talk about this in a second. We talk about full frame versus crop. They've right. gotten away from using 35 millimeter equivalents, but it does make a lot of, of an obstacle for people trying to understand this stuff. And they throw up their hands and they're like, I just don't get it. I, maybe yeah. photography isn't for me. Yeah. And we're, we're hoping to help people get past that. <laughs> well, and I think if anything, I, I want to convey the message that if you feel like you're lost because of this terminology, it's not you. There's so much that's either unneeded or extraneous, or it just doesn't really like, it doesn't really matter what the 35 millimeter equivalent is, as long as you're shooting with a lens that gives you the field of view that you want. Right. Yeah. When you put that camera up to your eye, you don't have to explain this stuff. You just make photos. Yeah. yeah. And also maybe this is because I'm a writer and therefore you're making me do math and come on, let's, (laughs) let's be a little, little uh, more gracious here, shall we? Exactly. So. Exactly. So let's let's start with some camera terms, Jeff. Let's dig yeah. in to things that are really about the camera technology that we use. I want to start with a real basic one that trips uh, some people up, and that is mirrorless cameras versus DSLR, because we've seen this evolution. When I got my first digital camera, it was a point-and-shoot camera. That mm-hmm. was technically a mirrorless camera. But then when I got my first real 
digital camera. It was a DSLR, which stands for a digital single lens reflex camera. So let's, let's well, pick that clear. apart. What's, what are the differences? Okay. So digital single lens reflex, which always drove me crazy. Basically you have a mirror in your camera that bounces the image through the lens and up so you can see what the camera is, is seeing. That didn't always tell you exactly what you would be shooting. And so that's why you look through your viewfinder, um, compose your shot, and then know because of, of what you know about shutter speed and aperture, and, and these are the things that we'll talk about, how to properly expose it. And when you take the picture, that lens gets moved up out of the way because obviously you need to expose the sensor <laughs> to the light. Yeah. Uh, and and the, that that gets gets moved out of the way and that's why you have real definitive sort of click thunk sound in in a lot of cameras that was all just the mechanics of how it had to work because you know you needed to be able to see what what you were doing but it sort of gotten lost in 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 acronyms because nobody wanted to say single lens reflex you know i mean that's that's just awkward even, even that's confusing <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. That's true. You know. just say a mirrored camera. The mirror is, is a carryover from the film days, right? We had to have a way to look at what was going to happen when the light hit the film. And since you couldn't see through the film, right, <laughs> you had to bounce that image up into a pentaprism and it would do some flipping and turning and focusing. And we would be able to see sort of a, a proxy view of what the lens was getting. Yeah. When we went to sensors... We had the ability to put the screen on the back of the camera, which is a readout from the sensor. And so the sensor, once it's exposed to light, is telling you exactly what it's seeing. You know, later when we moved to mirrorless cameras, we replaced the viewfinder up at the top with another little screen in there. Mm -hmm. So instead of this uh, prism of glass flipping and refocusing the light coming in, um, we're just getting a digital readout from the screen. Or from the sensor. And right. it's brilliant. And so I love the fact that, you know, with mirrorless cameras, one of the things I had a conversation last week on this workshop I was on was, you know, one of the greatest advantages of a mirrorless camera is in bright sunlight or in difficult conditions. You can look in the viewfinder and get your eye nice and close and block out the rest of the world. And you can see what that sensor is getting. And that's not something we could do with a, a DSLR. Or back in the film days, an SLR, right? right? Right. So when we think about cameras, nowadays, almost all of the digital cameras, the, the big high-end digital cameras that are being made are mirrorless. And we're, we're seeing that evolution. All the companies now have realized that the smart way to go is to get rid of that mirror. And you mentioned the flapping of that mirror. Mm -hmm. Back when I was a photojournalist, uh, if I was shooting in a courtroom, that was usually the toughest place to try to get a photo. I couldn't use a regular camera. I had to buy a camera that had a really quiet mirror. Right. <laughs> it's right. not the shutter that made lots of noise. It was that flapping mirror clicking up and down. Nowadays, we have absolutely silent cameras. You can turn off the shutter sound with a lot of cameras. You can, you know, this is getting into more lingo, right? right. You can go from a shutter uh, exposure to a non-shutter exposure. And what that's doing is creating just a different way that for your sensor to read that data. Yeah. Since our sensors are exposed to light all the time, we use a shutter to minimize or to control exactly how much time that 
sensor is going to be exposed to light, but we can do that digitally too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just how fast can we get the processor to scan the information off that sensor? Well, yeah, it's and, faster and faster. And actually that right there is a good point because one of the reasons why this whole thing came about by calling them mirrorless. And again, this is like an industry jargon thing. It, it, a mirrorless means nothing to anybody who doesn't already know what this stuff means. But some of this had to do with the fact that early uh, imaging sensors, they couldn't send out the signal fast enough. And so, mm -hmm. you know, e even, even, you know, some of the, the early DSLRs, you could use the LCD on the back to compose, but that wasn't a default thing. And, and there were often limitations about, you know, how often it would refresh. And mm -hmm. so, you know, now we're at the point where technology is fast enough, the processors are good enough that you can see through the viewfinder or on the LCD what the camera is seeing in real time and make adjustments. And th th this is also the reason why when everybody asks me recommendations to buy cameras, I'm always saying like, go mirrorless because um, A, it is the future and DSLRs, you know, production's being cut way back on those, but you're going to be able to see what you're working with right away. And it's less of a guessing game. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about full frame versus crop. Now you alluded to this in your uh, yeah. introduction about history. Um, you know, full frame is <laughs> based on the idea that you have a chunk of film in there and mm -hmm. that that uh, surface area of that film uh, was 35 millimeters high by my however wide. I don't remember how wide it was. Yeah. And there's also the shape involved with that, right? So uh, it's a rectangular shape. It's a three to two right. ratio, <laughs> two units high, three units wide. So rectangle. <laughs> Here um, we are using lingo but, to describe lingo. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm falling into that trap. Yeah. But here's where the fun part begins. You mentioned that when we started making digital sensors, they, were, they couldn't be very big. And so they were smaller than what we would have been used to with 35 millimeter film. And so we call that a crop uh, sensor because it actually is smaller. It, that's like that 35 millimeter area has been cropped down to yeah. something smaller. Sometimes in some cameras, very minuscule, teeny tiny little sensors. Like your phone. Like my phone. Exactly. But you know, if you think about, I was shooting with someone last week who was shooting Olympus and they said, yeah, it's a two X sensor. And I'm like, wow. And so what that means is on my full frame camera, if I attach a 50 millimeter lens to that camera, the view is the 50 millimeter perspective, right? Mm -hmm. There's a certain angle of view. There's a certain magnification happening. That's 50 millimeters. Well, if I put that 50 millimeter lens on this Olympus, it's now 100 millimeters. It was a 2x, so two mm. times. You have to do a little mental math here. But once you get used to it, you should be able to just push aside the fact that a 50 millimeter lens, even though it says 50 on it, when you're using it with your camera, that's a hundred and you just yeah. make those adjustments. Why Olympus doesn't just put a hundred on there really bugs me because, <laughs> you know, Fuji's a great example. Fuji's even harder because it's a 1.5 crop, right? Mm -hmm. So now you have to figure out, well, what's 50% more focal length? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, why don't they just label the lenses, you know, the proper equivalent? Right, right. Well, and, and th this goes back to what I said in terms of like real world usage. I don't know. 
Well, I guess you have a combination of full frame and crop sensor cameras. I have my one camera. I have a Fuji X-T3. You know, for me, I don't give a flying squirrel about how the magnification has changed or the, or the crop. Like, like the math doesn't matter to me because right. I know that if I have a 35 millimeter lens on my camera, I'm going to get a certain field of view that I like, that I chose for that look. Right. Now, that is probably closer to a 50 millimeter uh, when you take into consideration the crop sensor. And to me, I don't care. Like, that right. doesn't matter. As long as it's in that range, and I know that there are people who like that look better, you'll, mm -hmm. you'll see people who, who really prefer a 50 millimeter lens versus a 35 millimeter lens you know, for doing portraits, or maybe they'll shoot with like a, a 90 or a 110 millimeter lens for portraits. And that's all just because of how they want to frame it and, and the look that the lens gives. Exactly. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. What, the number is completely what the conversion arbitrary is. at yeah. this point. And yeah. there's certain things about photography where we have chosen a, a convention, a mm -hmm. naming convention, and by God, we're going to we're going to plant that flag and we're going to stand on that hill and, and it just needs to be abandoned. And one of those things is this idea of focal lengths because the, the measurement, that number that we're seeing on these lenses, it's a 50 millimeter lens, hundred millimeter lens, doesn't really matter. Those lenses aren't a hundred millimeters long anymore. They're not 50 millimeters long anymore. And they haven't been in a very, very long time. So perhaps maybe a better way to think of lenses in their, in their measurements is the angle of view, because that's something that's, mathematical, right? That's yeah. true. <laughs> it's not, it's not some arbitrary number that is, you know, yeah. that lens sees that wide. And if we knew what that angle was and the lens was labeled with that on, you know, a Fuji camera, a Fuji lens is going to see 85 degrees of uh -huh. field of width of view. A telephoto lens is obviously going to be narrow. Maybe it's three degrees. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think that would be a smarter way to do it, but we're stuck with this antiquated carry over from film days. And it really does get confusing for people. What I want folks to remember, lenses have both that field of view, the width that they can see, that angle that they can see, and the magnification. And those change depends on the optical formula of the lens. That number that you're looking at on that lens has nothing to do with the length of the lens or anything. And if you use it on a crop sensor or a full frame sensor, it's going to have different performance. Yeah. And it's just something you've got to get past the lingo and understand how they work. And maybe someday as a photography community, we can get past some of this antiquated stuff. Let's, let's move on to something really <laughs> crazy. I was going to say, I, I was going to say, I, I love your optimism. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. But let's talk about something that's super easy, shall we? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking about my, my OIS the other day, and uh, I, I was like, do I need an IBIS or just an IS or an OIS? And do I even say those as acronyms? And then my brain exploded, and here we are. Yeah, and there's probably a cream for that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's crazy because uh, when it comes to image stabilization or IS. IS. Or IS. <laughs> Yes. When it comes I can't to image stabilization, there's a lot of acronyms involved. Now, in every company, every camera manufacturer has their own uh, spin on these acronyms. And so on my Sony cameras, I have IBIS sensor, which means it's an in-body image stabilization system. So the sensor inside my cameras on these little servo motors that move it around. And so if I bump my camera, it sort of tries to dampen that motion. 
-hmm. And it's pretty wild. That sensor sort of floating in there, right? So that's IBIS. That's in-body image stabilization. But then there are some lenses that have stabilization in the lens elements. And so inside the lens, there's something in here that's floating. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. usually an optical element, a glass element that's floating. And that is going to dampen the motion. Now, here's where it gets fun. Every company using different terminology to say the same damn thing. So there's lens stabilization and there's sensor stabilization. Mm -hmm. We cannot just say that. <laughs> nope. No. So when you see a lens and it's got a switch on it and it says, you know, IS or not IS, that's stabilization. Yeah. You know, just know what it is and then just forget the lingo and remember what it does. A lot of this also came about because I, I feel like I'm Mr. History Guy here, which is kind I of hilarious. It. But a lot of this came about because, again, like th these technical limitations. So in-body image stabilization is a relatively new thing, quote unquote, uh, relatively new. And so if you wanted stabilization most of the time, and I think most of the time still, it comes from the lens. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, so so you, you will buy a lens, you will pay extra for a lens that has this stabilization, and sometimes it can be it can be incredible. I mean, the technology is is really impressive. And then some camera bodies have the in body stabilization, so you can use a lens that is not stabilized with it and still you know reduce some of that camera movement, camera shake. Uh, helps in low light situations, etc. But then there's also uh, one thing that uh, you forgot to mention was optical image stabilization. Oh so, yeah, uh, let's get into that. OIS, and what that means is uh, what you described. Like like th th there are physical elements that are either moving the lens or moving the sensor, or in some cases you have a camera that has a camera oh. and a lens that both are stabilized mm -hmm. and they they talk to each other and it's it's wonderful. The opposite of OIS and I'm glad that there's no acronym DIS DIS <laughs> which would be digital image stabilization and what right. that what that's doing is um also can be very clever and is used uh you know in all sorts of applications especially like on phones and things. Yeah, so where, iPhones would have that software stabilization, right? It's doing yeah. it with software. Yeah, it's just recording the same scene, but it's cropping the image and adjusting it to make it seem more stable. Exactly. So you know, it's not it's not inherently worse, but um, you're you're sort of losing a little bit of of image data in order to make that happen. Yeah. So I, I want to make one note on image stabilization before we move on. Yeah. Um, I was shooting uh, orca whales from a boat last week. I know. What a life. Um, <laughs> and I was using my 100 to 400 millimeter lens on my Sony uh, A7R4. So I have in-body in stabilization and uh, lens optical image stabilization working together uh, on that camera. In a boat. Uh, in a boat. <laughs> in a moving. And here's the thing that, that struck me. I, I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm trying to make sure. I want to make sure all my stabilization is turned on. But I also know that if I'm in a moving boat, I need to have a really fast shutter speed or things are just going to be blurry. It's not, it's not the function of my camera shaking. It's the function of the world whipping by at yeah. that speed. And so what I want people to understand is that all of this stabilization is for really slow exposures, really you know, slow shutter speeds. Mm. And that when you move up to a higher shutter speed, your image stabilization becomes it's a diminishing return because you're taking such a fast exposure. So I was shooting at one eight hundredth of a second. 
Uh, so I'm trying to take these fast exposures so that the subject matter isn't blurry. <laughs> and the image stabilization is not going to help me at all at that kind of a speed. Conversely, if I'm on a tripod and my camera is completely locked down, if my image stabilization is turned on, it can actually introduce blur because these elements are moving. Yeah. You yeah. They're, they're trying and to so, figure out. Yeah. It gets super complicated. So one thing to remember, if you're shooting uh, fast action and you're using a high shutter speed image stabilization, you can leave it on if you want, but it's not going to be doing much for you. Yeah. And if you're on a tripod and you're locked down and you're trying to do long exposures, turn it off so that it doesn't hurt you. And also remember, if you're going to be shooting uh, on a boat, you should set up your tripod on the boat so you get a a, a, a right. good stable. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually uh, very early on I did that once, and I was like, I I can't understand why everything's still moving. Yeah, well, and how I got sick so quick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's talk so, about one of my favorites. Comes up a lot in classes that I teach. My God, raw <laughs> versus JPEG. We're gonna go there. Yes, let's go there. All right. I deal with this a lot, especially when I'm writing about processing photos and things like that. So let's see if I can, if I can do this in a short way. Uh, so when you are shooting in JPEG, and that's an acronym, it stands for Joint Photographic Experts Group. That's what oh it boy. is. Oh boy, it sounds like a fun group of people. Yeah, it, like, like it, it totally doesn't matter. And what it is, it's an algorithm that uh, will look at, at what the sensor is captured, and and it's actually like a really smart algorithm and it throws away data in order to make a small file size. Now this was a lot more important in the past when you didn't have a whole lot of, of storage. You you go and buy an eight megabyte card for your camera <laughs> and <laughs> like things need to be condensed down and JPEG does a really good job of compressing it and still making it look good. And JPEG is also almost universally compatible with apps and things. And so it's the the default for shooting photos. And some cameras only shoot JPEG. Okay. Uh, most cameras now, I think, other than like simple point and shoots, shoot in RAW. And RAW will bend your brain and drive you crazy. But here's here's the gist of it. Your camera sensor is recording the light that, that comes through the lens. And because it's 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 digital, it's a computer. It is uh, recording that uh, just as ones and zeros. It, it's just pure information, and a raw file is just that. It's just the pure information. Now the advantage is your data is not getting thrown out when it gets compressed, mm -hmm. so you have a lot more image data to work with when you're processing. You can do a lot more with it. Uh, a really good example is if you have a scene that has some dark areas as you're shooting it, as you're looking at it, you can often lighten those areas and and still have it look good rather than look really kind of patchy. So question for you, Jeff, and, and yeah. I think this is going to be a fun one. I like the word raw. It yes. actually... For me, it makes sense. It's There's been nothing done to it. And I always use the analogy that it's the ingredients to make your cake, right? If yes. you're baking or cookies, yes. right? But it's always capitalized. It's always written as an acronym. <laughs> yes, it so, drives me crazy. And we don't say R-A-W. We say RAW. So can we set the record straight here? Yes. Is RAW capitalized or no. is it written just like it should be? It <laughs> should just be R-A-W. It doesn't stand for anything. Yeah. Um, however, you're going to see it capitalized 
like all caps, capital R A N W, um, and, and I, I think it's just because JPEG is is an acronym, and mm-hmm. so it has to look as important as JPEG. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's 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 it's, it's 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 one of those those stupid things. So, um, if you're wondering, folks, if there's an acronym behind it, there's not. So you can just say raw. You don't have to pretend it's an acronym you don't understand. It's just straight yeah. up raw data coming off yep. that sensor. Now, now. Again, try not to go too deep into the weeds. Here's here's the other key thing about RAW that you need to know is that every camera manufacturer has their own flavor of RAW. Yeah. And so this is how the data is stored. And, and there, there are things in that file that they can incorporate. So, for example, let's say uh, a camera company that they're using an older sensor that tends to be sort of noisy. It introduces some digital noise. Well, in the raw file, they know mathematically what that is. And so they can correct for that so that when you go and edit it, you don't see that noise. And so that's, that's embedded in the raw file. Now, the problem is every company has their own raw file and every camera has its own flavor of that company's raw file. Mm-hmm. And they don't share this information among themselves. And they don't share it with companies like Adobe or Apple. And so when you buy a brand new camera and you're really excited about it and it's going to take these amazing raw images and you put it on your computer and your computer can't open that file. Well, that's mm-hmm. because your computer doesn't know how to translate that particular raw file. And the software manufacturers have to go in and decode all of that and build their own profile so that they can make it work. It's it's inane, it's self-defeating, it's stupid, and I hate it. And that's the reality of the industry because the camera companies think, well, my my raw file for this you know x five six six two two camera is so mm-hmm. superior that we can't let anybody know what it is. Right, it's a secret sauce that only we know. Drives so, me crazy. It's those eleven herbs and spices, Jeff. So oh, the, the thing that gets me is Adobe years ago tried to um, kind of give a gentle nudge. Yes. With the introduction of the DNG, it's a digital negative file. Brilliant. It's a raw format that's universal. And they were saying, hey, look, you could just have those cameras make DNGs. And everybody was like, nope, <laughs> we're going to stick <laughs> with our proprietary uh, secret sauce recipes. And I, I picture this poor person uh, at a desk at a little cubicle. I always picture Adobe as this cubicle city. <laughs> and there's a person and there's a row of these cubicles in the basement of Adobe. And there's one that's Canon, one that's Sony, one that's Fuji. <laughs> and every time a new camera comes out, somebody runs in with the package and they throw it down on the desk of the Fuji guy and he opens it up and he's like, it's the new X-T4. And he plugs in, takes a few test shots and plugs in that card. And he starts to instantly try to figure out how to interpret the raw data so that yeah. Lightroom can read it. Yeah. And the Sony guy is down there doing it with his new camera and everybody's and everybody's waiting for these guys to finish this work so we can use our software with our new cameras. It's incredibly frustrating to know that months and months ago, that engineer at Sony, uh, that engineering team at Sony could have just 
put a Adobe person on an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, and said, listen, we're going to share our raw data with you so that you can build a proper profile so that all of our users have good experiences with our products. Sony, Fuji, guys, get on the phone with Adobe. Let's figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, it's crazy. So, so Jeff, let's move on to some photography terms. So these aren't necessarily specific to cameras. These are Mm -hmm. generally terms that we use when we're discussing photography. And I want to start with the big three uh, that we talk about a lot whenever we talk about making exposures. Uh, And one of them is uh, the first one we'll start with the alphabetical, right? Let's start with aperture. Wonderful. Uh, Let's start with aperture. And uh, this is a fun one because it involves some really fun math. You know what? We should also talk about uh, f-stops. That would be a good idea too. Yeah. Wait a second. (laughs) I was talking about aperture. You want to talk about f-stops? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't really care about aperture. I only care about f-stops. Oh, uh, good God. Now, see, see, this is an, the perfect example of, of why we're doing this and what drives us crazy because they're the same they're thing. They're the same thing. Yeah. So an aperture is literally the opening inside your lens that lets the light through, mm-hmm. right? It's adjustable, right? So we can uh, make it bigger, we can make it smaller, but it can only get so big. It can only get so small. And so right. we have numbers that we associate with this. And these numbers are actually a ratio. I love this, that it's a true math involved in this. You ready uh, for the ratio, Jeff? Uh, yeah. Hit it's me with a, the ratio because I'm gonna I'm gonna start screaming. Go ahead. Yeah, so get your paper and pencil out. Here we go. Uh it is a ratio of the distance between the aperture and the, the film plane or the sensor mm-hmm. and the opening. Mm. And so we just munch those two together and we spit out this, you know, instead of a fraction, we're going to spit out a a decimal version of that. And so a lot of times you'll see these numbers with these dots in them, right? So 4.0 or 2.8 or 5.6 or 8.0, we've heard of these. And in some places they call these F-stops and literally on an old lens that clicks and some of my newer lenses, like I have this Sony a 50 millimeters lens, which I just love. It has a little clickable, you hear that a little clickable, um, uh-huh. aperture ring. And this particular lens, one of the reasons I love it is it goes all the way up to 1.2. So it has, it opens up really, really wide. Okay. 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 I'm going to stop you right there. It goes up to 1.2. Oh God. Yeah. The and this is smaller. This is okay. <laughs> let me, let me say this for people, everything that Mason just said about math, you can forget about it. Okay. Absolutely. Unless you really, 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 really want to get into it. Because here's the thing, as long as you sort of know the ranges of, of, of aperture, then it'll make sense. And because the world is a cruel place, the smaller numbers are the better aperture. So when your aperture is quote-unquote wide open, you'll hear this term wide open, it means that the aperture is as large and, and as far open as it can get mechanically. Like it, it can't open any further. And so the most light is coming into the lens and hitting the sensor. Now, on your lens right there, that's uh, 1.2. And you'll also hear this as F1.2. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a very wide aperture and sometimes will also be uh, known as a fast lens or a bright lens. Sorry, a, a bright aperture. 
uh-huh. fast. A bright lens. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, there's so many just interchangeable uh, yeah. descriptors on this. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, and then conversely, if you want to have a, a small aperture, so less light is getting through, then you might set it to F8 or F12 or F16 even. And at those levels, like like a, a very small amount of light is getting through. And there are reasons for that. But just in terms of, uh, of the numbers with aperture, when the, when the number is small, it's better and wider. When the aperture is large, it's small and darker. Darker. Yeah. And there's, we could do a whole episode on, on why you'd use different apertures. And I would love to talk about that at some point because oh, totally, yeah. I love be, having, being able to change this right now with our iPhones, it's a fixed aperture. And so we can't adjust the aperture on our, on our phones, but in our quote unquote real cameras, uh, we have this adjustability. And now we know that when you hear the term F-stop or the term aperture or the terms dark, bright, fast, or slow, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> those See? all refer to this opening, this big opening in the lens that lets the light through. Uh, so let's talk about shutter speed. This one's a lot easier. Right? Yeah. Do we have any other names for shutter speed? Only when you... Uh, have the shutter speed too high and you use words that should not be used in this, this podcast. Yeah. Those, those kind of names, those, those, those swearing names where you realize, oh, everything's dark because everything's I had my shutter speed too you high. You set yeah. the wrong shutter speed. Yeah, so yeah, another, yeah. another name I've used for it before is exposure time. And it's okay. really, we're talking There's about that a time too. value, right? And on some dials on these cameras, if you look at the top, it might say TV on the dial. Mm-hmm. And that is a mode uh, on your camera where your camera is going to prioritize uh, shutter speed or time value over you know, aperture or ISO. When you see that time value, that's, it's interchangeable with shutter speed. It all means the amount of time you're going to let that sensor see light. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. a measurement of time. And it's, it's typically a fraction. So you'll have like, like a very, very fast shutter speed. It, it, well, as you mentioned, like you were shooting, uh, orcas at one eight hundredth per second, mm-hmm. right? Eight so, hundredth of a second. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, so your, your camera might actually say like shutter speed, it, it'll say 800 because there's no you know room to actually make that a fraction, but you just have to understand that's a fraction. Mm-hmm. And so the higher that number it's, it's a, a fractional amount. So the, the shutter speed will open and close that much more quickly and, and let in less light mm-hmm. versus you can have shutter speeds that are like a full second or one, one tenth of a second. And, and that just leaves the shutter open for that length of time and you get a lot of light coming in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the little dial on top of my uh, little Fuji XE4, little, mm-hmm. little, as simple a camera as you can get these days, really. And it just simply goes from 4,000 at the top all the way down to B, which stands for bulb. <laughs> so let's throw this trivia in there. You know why that's called bulb, Jeff? I, I, I do know why. <laughs> it's because of the tulip uh, oh, no, no, trade no. in Holland. No. <laughs> you know, back when I was a kid, Long time ago. I mean, back, uh, we were walking 10 20, years ago. Yeah, 10, 15, 20 years, 50 <laughs> years ago. So I had a, a Canon AE1 camera and it had a little threaded hole in the top of the shutter button. Mm-hmm. And I had a little push plunger uh, shutter release and you yeah. screw it in there and it was threaded and you screw it in there. And, and it, when you push on the plunger at the other end, a little metal rod would push down and, and trip the shutter. Yeah. That's not a bulb. But 
<laughs> somebody for Christmas one year, probably my loving parents, gave me a uh, bulb, which was a long uh, plastic tube. And at one end, there was the little plunger, the threaded part and a little metal plunger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the other end was a rubber bulb, like like you'd see on like a, a, squeeze bulb. a blood pressure cuff, right? A squeeze bulb. And I could be way across the room. I, I could be, this thing was absurdly long. I could be like 50 feet away and squeeze that bulb in the plunger at the other end because the air pressure would pop down and trip the shutter. So that's where we get the B for bulb. And a lot of people see that and they're like, I have no idea why that's called bulb, mm-hmm. but now you do. And then yeah. you can forget about it because it doesn't matter. Nobody has bulbs anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that just simply means you can, as long as the shutter's held down, that's as long as your exposure time or your mm-hmm. shutter speed. So you could keep it down for a minute. You keep it down for four hours if you want. Uh, God help you. Uh, it's not going to look good, but you could do that. Next thing, which has always driven me crazy is ISO. And actually, oh, I think you mean the thing- ISO. ISO. ISO, yeah. <laughs> I've always said ISO. I hear people say ISO. I'm going to say that I'm correct just because I'm going to be arrogant for a second. Jeff, I'm going to agree with you. It is an acronym, oh. and acronyms should be said as Very good. ISO. International Standards Organization, right? Yep, yep. You should make a GIF about this. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. You mean Jeff? I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> So, so, so ISO, uh, which of course means international standards organization, which means nothing in this context, nothing at all. Uh, but ISO is, and now I'm going to say something. I think you're going to correct me and we'll see if, 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 if this works. So ISO is the light sensitivity of your sensor. So when you have a higher ISO value, it just means that, that, that the sensor is able to collect more light. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason you would want to do that is if you're in a dark situation and you're trying to get as much light as you can. And so having a more sensitive sensor will will a- attract more of that light. But there's a cost. And the cost is that with when there's more sensitivity on the sensor, uh, there tends to be more noise, more digital noise. And that brings us to what we should really be calling it, which is gain. Gain. Yeah, it's literally power, electricity being pushed through this charge coupled device we call a sensor. Um, and so, you know, the sensor in a camera is a, is a computer chip that has all of these little photodiodes on it, and they take electricity to run. Every camera has what's known as a base ISO, which is the best quality that that sensor can produce. Mm-hmm. And most cameras, that's going to be like 100, 200 in that range. That base ISO, if you can use that base ISO, you should use that base ISO. Mm-hmm. But normally it's not enough. It's not enough sensitivity. You're shooting in a dark place or you're shooting at night or something like that. And you need to crank it up to get those stars in the shot or whatever. Um, when you start increasing the power through that sensor, uh, it's increasing the gain, increasing the sensitivity of the sensor. Uh, and like you said, it introduces noise. And I, the best way I can describe this is it's just like having a stereo system, which is another archaic thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Kids, back in the day, we had the stereo system, had a big black knob on it. And you'd crank this knob up. And when you got up there at six, seven, eight, um, and the speakers were just super loud, right? You're putting a lot of electricity through the system. 
It was really, really loud. There's a lot of amplification, but there's also a lot of distortion. Mm-hmm. And so in a camera sensor, the more power you pump through it, the worse it looks. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically as basic as we can make it. So ISO is a carryover from the film days. And this international standards organization got together at some point and had the bore, most boring convention ever in the history of humankind, <laughs> where they decided that 100 ISO or 64 ISO or 50 ISO was a low sensitivity film. And back then it would have been like a 400 ISO or 800 ISO was a high sensitivity film. Mm -hmm. So we've carried this nomenclature over to cameras. And now the smaller the number, like you said, is lower sensitivity, the higher the number. And they get absurd now, the 417,000 ISO, right? Yeah. That is, you know, grossly overamped through that (laughs) through that sensor and the noise is going to be atrocious so to put a bow on this one small number good big number maybe it's going to help you get the shot but your quality is going to going to take a hit we brought up lenses already but there's even more terminology about lenses so i'm thinking that i need for a an upcoming trip i need a zoom lens and I think maybe I also need a telephoto lens. But you should probably bring a macro lens too. But I should bring a macro telephoto zoom lens. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you can find one. If you can find one. <laughs> exactly. In addition to all, all the numbered terms that we have for the lenses, we also have these terms. We have zoom, prime, macro, telephoto, wide. And they're putting things into, I think, categories so that you don't have to think about what the numbers are, except sometimes you'll have a number that is a wide lens, but maybe it's not really treated as a wide lens. So break it down, zoom versus telephoto. Yeah. Well, actually let's do zoom versus prime, I think is a good zoom versus prime. We'll break it into there and then we'll go into the focal length. You could have a zoom lens that covers an an astonishing range, you know, 12 to 200 would be a really wide range. So 12 millimeter to 200 millimeter goes from a really wide angle lens to a telephoto lens or a, a zoomed in you know, tight lens, uh, think like a telescope, right? You know, zoom lenses are a single lens having elements that move inside of it and you turn a ring or slide it back and forth and it changes the focal length. A prime lens is fixed at a certain focal length, a certain magnification. I prefer prime lenses over zoom lenses in most cases because prime lenses, because they don't have to extend, they don't have to change focal lengths, they can be brighter, they can have bigger apertures. Mm-hmm. My 50 millimeter prime lens is just 50 millimeters, but it gets to be nice and bright. Yeah. I also have a hundred to 400 millimeter lens, which I adore. And that's when I was shooting the orcas with that covers a pretty good range, 100 to 400 millimeters. So that would be considered a telephoto zoom. <laughs> so right. let's, let's talk about these focal lengths. If something is co- called a wide lens, it tends to be, it's, it's a low magnification, wide uh, field, field of view, view wide angle. So it can be up to 180 degrees. In fact, Nikon has a lens that goes beyond 180 degrees. You actually can see behind you, which is crazy. Crazy, yeah. But uh, you know, most of us have wide-angle lenses in the 16 to 24 range, and that's going to be a really nice wide field of view that's pleasant to look at. It's not distorted. It's not fisheye looking. Mm-hmm. And then you go into what's known as a standard length lens, right? So you've got your 35 millimeters, your 50 millimeters, you're even up to like 70 millimeters would be considered a standard length lens. And people call it a standard length lens because it sort of approximates the 
field of view and magnification of the human eye, even though we're not going to get into that. See nope, last nope. episode yep. about eye health. <laughs> but the one I do want to talk about is where it gets kind of confusing for folks because we go from wide to telephoto, right? And standard is in the middle is macro because you can get a wide angle macro. You can get a telephoto macro. You can get a standard macro. Mm-hmm. What does macro mean? Just recently, Apple released the iPhone 13 Pro that has a macro mode, and it's actually using its widest camera, the the ultra-wide camera, they call it, but it has a really close focusing distance. And so macro photography is kind of a, a general umbrella that describes this photography where you're seeing things really close up. You're either seeing things like at, you know, one-to-one ratio as if you were like right there or even even closer and still getting things into focus. So think of, you know, uh, flower petals, insects, um, you know, there's, you can even go like, like even, even closer, but then that's kind of another type of macro photography, which is kind of crazy because you think macro, macro means big. Mm-hmm. And so you would think that would be all inclusive, but I think it just means macro because something that is very small, you're you're translating it in a very big way. Yeah, it's kind of a misuse of the word. And because I've I've just gotten used to the term macro, I don't think much about it. If I hit my head and didn't know anything about photography anymore. Yeah. And somebody said macro, I would assume that means a wide angle lens, that it's taking in everything. Mm-hmm. And that a micro lens would be one that's taking in a small uh, field of view. But it actually you know, the way you explained it, Jeff, is perfect. It's, it has to do with the closest focusing distance of that lens. And so there are some lenses out there, the zoom lenses that have macro abilities, meaning that they can, and a lot of times they'll have like a little flower on the side or something to sort of show you that, mm-hmm. that they can focus closer than a normal lens would. That can be yeah. really fun. That can be really yeah. nice. Uh, one thing I also want to point out when we're talking about, about the zoom lenses versus prime lenses, mm-hmm. one of the, the reasons why a prime lenses can be better even though you don't have that reach of being able to stand in the same place and zoom in on something, uh, with most lenses of that type, you're going to get a diminishing rate of return as you zoom in because Mm -hmm. you have multiple lens elements. And as you are turning the lens and it's extending the barrel, you're not going to get as much light passing through. So that's why you might see on a lens... Um, like, like I have a, an 18 to 135 millimeter lens for my Fuji mm-hmm. and it's aperture going back to aperture and F-stop is in the range of F 3.5 to I think 16. And, and what that means is as you extend the zoom, you're not going to get that 3.5 aperture. So you're not going to get as much light coming through. Yeah. So even though you can, see something that's far off, you're going to need more light to do it. Right. And, you know, I get a question a lot about, uh, in classes I teach about why would someone buy a prime lens if you can just get, you know, why would someone buy three or four prime lenses if you can get a zoom lens that covers that whole range? It all depends on how you're going to use that lens. If you're traveling and you don't want to carry five lenses, you want just one lens on that camera, you get a zoom. (laughs) You don't get a prime, there's no question. But there's compromises to be made. Right. Well, and and actually, um, if you've seen... Uh, sports shooters. Mm-hmm. You see the guys on 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 the the football fields or baseball fields, and they have these massive, massive, massive lenses. Well, those have incredible zoom, but they're also so large because they're designed to have 
say, a, a fixed aperture of f2.8. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, it has to be large. Optically, it has to be large. The lens elements are really large. It has to like pull in as much light as possible. And that's why they can get these amazing shots and still be able to shoot at high shutter speeds to catch the action. But the, the, the compromise there is you need a monopod that's just holding the lens up because there's no way you can hold this, uh, you know, handheld for any length of time. Exactly. Yeah. The, those big 600 and 400 millimeter lenses you see at the football games weigh, weigh a tremendous amount. They're getting better, but you can't handhold that. It's, it's a beast. And plus they yeah. cost, uh, yeah, they're equivalent to the weight in, uh, dollar bills. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. So let's let's get into some computer terms, Jeff. Now that we've introduced computers to photography, right? It's part of our workflow. We have a lot of lingo that ties in with computers that have Mm -hmm. kind of leaked in. And I want to start with one that's a pet peeve of mine, and I hear it all the time. And every time I hear it, my blood pressure goes up a little bit. And I hear people say, "We're going to do some post processing on our photos." Yeah, Yeah, let's do some post processing. Let's do some post processing. We've all heard that. So back when I was a film photographer, my photojournalism days, I would go after my long day out in the field, I would come back to the newspaper and I would go down to the darkroom and I would develop my film. I would process my film and then I would Mm -hmm. bring it upstairs to my office and I'd put that negative in a film scanner and I would scan it into the computer and work on it in Photoshop. So this was back, (laughs) way back in the day. Right. That at that point, that computer work was post-processing because I had processed the film. But what we're doing now is not post-processing. It's straight up processing. So you're not hanging the negatives on a post. That's, that's <laughs> totally what that means. <laughs> totally yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, um, yeah, Th- this is a holdover from that. Um, I think it's also kind of a, a, a holdover from movie making mm-hmm. because people will say, well, we'll, we'll do that in post. And I've always thought that meant like post meaning after, after the shooting has happened. And I know I've used post-processing because it's also one of those terms that you hear it enough. You think, well, that must be the term and you don't really analyze, you know, why, why is it post-processing? Well, you think about it now, it's sort of like saying, I'm going to go to the ATM machine. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, You're kind of saying the same thing. The <laughs> and and I'm sure like right now I, I kind of want to go back through my books and make sure that I I haven't used post processing, but I'm sure I have because well, that's yeah. just the term, right? It's a term that's used all the time. Nobody thinks about it. If you're going to use the word post, it should be post capture. I like the term processing because instead of going to a dark room now, we're going to Lightroom. Clever. Uh-huh. Well, clever right. 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 <laughs> You know, I just wanted to throw that out there because that's it, a term that's used a lot. It's a lingo term that's used a lot that actually needs to be taken out back and shot because it's it's outdated. It doesn't make sense. And Jeff's never going to say it again in another book. Ever. Uh, exactly. Or or on the podcast, <laughs> except for probably the next time we talk about this. And then, exactly. then you, you can catch me out. Actually, this brings up one of my pet peeves. And this is not specific to a term, but it's the pet peeve of using a term because it has been used for a long time and it's the the accepted correct term without really thinking about why it's being used. Yeah. And I think this goes back to to the reason why we're doing this this episode in the first place which is the well I'm going to use this terminology to show you that I know more because uh-huh. it's a lingo thing. And post processing kind of f- fits right into that. 
Yeah, people right? throw it around a lot. And you know, if there's one thing worse than using lingo to uh, demonstrate your knowledge is actually using your lingo to demonstrate the fact that you don't understand something. Right. <laughs> you know? um, and so, you know, think about the, the lingo and why it is the way it is. And if it doesn't sound right, it's probably not right. And stop using it. Yeah. You know, be, be a sentient being, right? Um, what? What? No, 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 no. <laughs> think for don't, yourself. Don't demand sentience. Okay. okay. This last one I actually love in terms of terminology because it's, it's actually, uh, unlike a lot of this stuff, it's very descriptive. Mm-hmm. And yet it can also be very confusing. All right. Um, okay. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I know where you're going. So let me, let me pitch it to you as a big old softball. Excellent. Okay. Um, I am working in Lightroom and okay. I have my catalog, uh, in Lightroom that I'm using and my catalog gets backed up and it is, um, full of all my files and it's also my library and I don't understand what the difference is. Help okay. me, Jeff, help me. I'd be happy to help you. I don't get it. <laughs> the thing that I was thinking of was, was the next term, but, but yes, let's, let, let's do library versus catalog because okay. it is confusing. And of course, now we get into the realm of software and software makers use all sorts of different names for things, but in general, and this is the way I've used it. Your library is your collection of photos, and that can be photos that exist either in one spot on your hard disk they can be on external drives like 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 your library is like the all-inclusive thing okay so let me let me stop you there so to use the literal library like the one in my neighborhood yeah if i go there and i walk in it is a giant room full of books Mm -hmm. and so what you're saying is my photo library is just a space filled with all my photos yeah yeah or or a, a way to get them like like it is the boundary of your library is the the photos that you have captured, okay. right? Okay. But they can be anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have photos that are on an external hard drive. I have photos that are on my, my laptop, right? But they are your collection of photos, okay? A catalog typically refers to a bit of software, usually a file on disk. And the, this is the case with things like Lightroom and Luminar, uh, the, the, the photos app, for example, um, the, the, the Apple photos app, excuse me, that is the database, honestly, that is keeping track of where all your photos are. And, uh, oh, uh, so, okay. um, remember the library, the card catalog. <laughs> yeah. It's the Dewey decimal system, right? It's, that, it is. it's that Which, big wooden box full of all those little drawers and they have all those cards. And that tells me where I can find the the book. Right, 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 right. Which nobody knows what that is anymore, right? So, oh yeah. So we've just used just dated ourselves an again. outdated term to describe an outdated <laughs> term. <laughs> okay, so so the catalog and the, the the reason this is important is because uh, the applications can either save your edits uh, one of two ways. They can either save it either into the file you're editing. Or in the case of a raw file, you'll have like a little what's what's called a sidecar file. We'll get okay. to that in just a second. Okay. Um, and and that describes what has been done. Like the exposure has been increased fifty, right? So you know whatever your number kind, is, kind of like you're writing a recipe card. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
or they they store all that in in this one catalog file which is just a database so that it says all right uh, photo one two three has an exposure adjustment of plus fifty. Lightroom, as sort of like like the, the big obvious example, it does that because it can access all that data much more quickly, and it's all in one centralized place. So your catalog is the information about all your photos. They aren't the actual photo files. Okay. So let me build on this analogy because you're helping me a lot because I do get Good. crossed up on this. And even though I've been, and I'm not kidding here, I've been doing this forever <laughs> and I still get my, my brain gets crisscrossed. Yeah. Yeah. So going with my Dewey decimal system analogy, okay. some people are going to understand that uh-huh. if I, in my Lightroom catalog, if I go to an image in that catalog, I see the, the strip of photos and I pick one, uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, that Lightroom knows where that image is, knows where that raw file is living, on which hard drive it's living. Correct. So it knows which shelf that book's on, right? Right. If I start working on that image, I'm not changing the the image itself. I'm just adjusting it inside this catalog function. And so I'm writing a little recipe card. Yes. And Lightroom's going to staple it to the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> card. So it not only knows where the photo is, but what you've done to it. Yes. So that when you output that photo, it's going to apply all those changes you made and make the product that you're making. Does that yes. make sense? Did I do yes. that right? No, no. That, that's, that's a really good way of, of breaking it down. Now, because we're talking software, there are all sorts of uh, you know variations on it. So, for example, the Apple Photos app has a catalog. So it's storing everything all of the information in one place. But by default, it is also storing all of the image files in one place. Yeah, that drives and, me crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, and, and you know, that's like another five episodes that we can, exactly. we can talk about later. But basically, yeah, a, a catalog is, is telling you what information is happening to all the different files. And to put this into practical terms, the best example of this in a practical way is when you're backing up your photos, right? You want to make sure you have a backup of all your image files, all those JPEGs and RAW files and all that. However, you also want to make sure you have a backup of your Lightroom catalog file. Because if that Lightroom catalog file gets lost or damaged, then you still have all your images, which is great. But any of the edits that you applied are no longer associated with those. And so all your edits are gone. Right. So, so, right. so, so you want to make sure you have both a backup of the catalog and of the files themselves. To, to further build on my analogy, uh, if you decide you don't want to keep your books in that library anymore, you're going to box them all up and take them to a warehouse. What I'm saying here is I want to stop using Lightroom when I want to start using Capture One. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't move my catalog, my Dewey Decimal System but that big wooden box with all the little drawers in it isn't going to work in the warehouse because we're keeping all the books in boxes now instead of on shelves. And so I have to build a new catalog if I switch software, right? Yes. Yes. Because the two typically won't, won't talk to each other. Now I'm going to bend your brain just a little bit. Oh, please do. Let's say you've, you have your library, right? And this is your library, your Lightroom library. And you leave all the books where they are, but you decide you want to use Capture One instead. Uh-huh. You don't have to move any of your books because Capture One, you would say, all right, here's, here's my library. 
here are where my photos are located. And then Capture One will uh, store its edits in its own catalog. And so, so you can have multiple catalogs pointing at the same image file, and it's not going to mess up that file because that file's not touched. And the two different applications are storing different data for, for how it's, it's edited, which brings us to... Destructive versus non-destructive. I yeah. love these terms. These this make is the sense one, to me, right? Yeah, exactly. This is the one that I like. So when you hear destructive versus non-destructive, it basically means, are you going to take the original image and change it in a way that it can't be set back to its original? So that's destructive. You're, you're, you're destroying the original. Even if you're making it better, mm-hmm. you're actually changing the pixels in that image. Now, with, with JPEG files, this is really easy to do in some cases. Some, some software, um, like let's say you want to open a file just in Photoshop. Let's, let's get all the Lightrooms and things out sure, of the way. You, sure. it, you just open that one JPEG file in Photoshop, and you increase the exposure to 50, and you hit uh, Command-S. You do File Save. And what that will do is that will just overwrite that image and... You have now, quote unquote, destroyed that image, destroyed that original, because you can't go back to, to the way it was. You just replaced it with the one you made. You just replaced it with the one you made. Okay. Now, the problem with that is if you decide, what was I thinking? Exposure of 50 has just ruined it. Well, you're out of luck. So non-destructive, and that's what most photo editors are, especially things like like Lightroom and, and what have you, when they are non-destructive, it means they're going to record what gets changed, but they're not going to affect that original image. So you can always go back. You can say, I don't know what I was thinking. Oh, right. This is when I was in my, my crazy HDR phase where everything was turned <laughs> up to 15 and sunsets glow like the, the Las Vegas strip. Well, I've grown and learned that that's not a good look. I can just revert back and start over if I want. Yeah, or and even even better. Um, I took that photo in 2009, and Lightroom back then uh, did okay. Mm-hmm. But now it's so much more powerful. I can go back and, yeah. and take that raw stuff, that raw data, and mm-hmm. reimagine it. One of the great analogies I love about this destructive versus non-destructive is... Um, your raw file is uh, like a composer sits down and makes a piece of music and they write that piece of music. Mm-hmm. The raw file is that written piece. The product of that is a performance. So you could perform that same piece thousands of times mm-hmm. and it never changes that original piece. It's how you right. interpret it and how you play it that makes the changes, but you don't ruin the old piece. You don't ruin the right. original. It's not like Beethoven's fifth now sounds like, you know, um, the machine gun Kelly. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and, <laughs> and let me, a quick clarification because you, you sort of slid right into talking about raw images there. Uh, one of the great things about raw images is that you actually cannot, well, sorry, you can, um, it is very difficult to be able to change a raw image because unlike, let's say we open a JPEG image in Photoshop and then you can make a change and save it and it affects that original file. With a raw image, 
that raw file, again, it's just ones and zeros. So there mm. actually isn't anything about that file that is an image. Right. So when you open that in Lightroom or anything, there has to be this separate step of translating those ones and zeros and turning it into what we see as an image. So that's why when you open up a raw file in Photoshop, this whole other thing called Adobe Camera Raw opens. Mm -hmm. And that is translating that, turning it into an image, and then you can you can work from there. And right. so like you can't just increase the exposure and save that raw image. In order to to make that sort of adjustment, you need to use a text editor or a programming environment to dig into where there's like, you know, exposure colon 50, what have you inside <laughs> that. And, you know, that's, that's programming. Yeah. So pretty much all of your editing should be non-destructive because then once you make some edits, what you do is you save a copy, you save your edited version as a JPEG that you then print or share online or what have you. That's awesome. So I love those terms because you are destroying the original or you're not destroying. Yeah. And yeah. And that, that's nice lingo that I can get behind. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Speaking of, speaking of lingo that we can get behind, there are some things we didn't even get to here, but I think this is a good, a good place to stop. As always, if you have questions, go to photocombobulate.com, go to the show notes here, send us these questions. We are happy, as you can tell, we are happy to talk about this. It's an area where you and I have both been photographers for a long time. I have been writing about photography for a long time and terminology still trips me up. Mm -hmm. There are still some things that I have to, you know, go back and remind myself what this means or what's the the, the ratio of this to that. So if you're feeling like you are just confused or if if you feel like you're not quite getting it, that's totally understandable. And once you get to these core foundational things that we've talked about, it does make it easier. It does become more understandable over time. Yeah. And I, I'm as a photography educator, I've always believed that understanding how things work is more important than necessarily, you know, just making them work. So for instance, you know, our cameras are very complicated computer devices uh, and they'll do a lot of things for us. But as photographers, as artists, as creators, uh, we need to be in control of that process. And you can't be in control of that process if you don't understand it. And so uh, the point of this whole podcast has been to sit, sort of give you some, some foundational understanding. Uh, we obviously skimmed over a lot of things. You can't, you can't teach photography in an hour. <laughs> I'm sorry. You just <laughs> Despite our it. best efforts. <laughs> Despite our best efforts. I've, I've tried many times. It just doesn't work. But we're here to, to have an evolving conversation about it. And so we wanted to have a kind of a good place to start. That said... Uh, what Jeff said about making comments on our website uh, on the show notes page is critical because that is your opportunity. That is your place to let us know where we hit the mark and where we've missed and what you'd like to hear about in the future. And that's going to shape our future episodes. I'm really excited about this podcast and where it's headed. And it's it feels like it's a wide open frontier for us. And so we have a lot of places we can go in Rome. We'd love people to tell us what they'd like. So again, go to photocombobulate.com. You'll see an episodes uh, link there. You can click on that and it'll show you all the episodes we've done. And at the bottom of each of those episode pages is a comments uh, field. 
There's also a contact us form. So you can also just send us a, an email if you want, if you want to be less public with your questions. Uh, you can do that through our, the website, uh, photocombobulate.com. Uh, along with that, we would really love uh, people to help us out. We are a new podcast. This is just episode five. So we'd really appreciate if you would go to your podcast app, your podcast player, and review this podcast, give us some props if you could. Uh, rate us. Make sure you put that rating down. That helps. And please tell your friends about Photocombobulate. Uh, the more people involved in this conversation, the better it's going to be. Have we photocombobulated this? I, I feel like we photocombobulated <laughs> A little bit. Hard. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. We'll do it again some other time, Jeff. All right. Talk to you soon, my friend. Bye. Bye.